All right, River City, uh, we are in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. We've been going through 1 Corinthians, seeing how Paul calls the people of Corinth to follow him, to follow Jesus, not to follow the celebrities of their day, not to follow those uh, who were popular in their uh, town that they lived in, not to follow a variety of different philosophies and mindsets, but instead to devote their lives to and to follow Jesus. Uh, we've been in this section talking about the, the freedoms of the Christian life and how on occasion uh, God will call us to sacrifice our freedom that we might serve other people with the gospel. Uh, we've been talking about this fact that the freedom of the gospel is often expressed in enslaving ourselves to the proclamation of the gospel, knowing that the temporary sacrifice of our day is worth eternal reward. And that's just what we'll see Paul walk through in this section today um, as he leans into the Corinthians and tries to instruct them on how they can take this life that they're living, how they can take this freedom that they've been given, and they can use it for the sake of the gospel. So we'll pick it up in uh, verse 19 of chapter 9, First Corinthians. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. The gospel has set us free in Jesus. This is one of the most uh, foundational truths of Christianity is that, that the gospel, the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has brought freedom to those of us who believe in him because we were previously enslaved. This is a language that the Bible uses throughout, that there is this kind of uh, picture in the Bible of what freedom in Christ looks like versus the enslavement to sin. And so God, uh, in his sovereignty and in his people, Israel in the Old Testament, they go through these cycles uh, of being near to God and worshiping God and experiencing freedom, and they go through these cycles of great enslavement and pain in which they cry out to God for the freedom that he provides. And so Paul in verse 19 here points to this big theological truth of the freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, just to go over a little bit um, of kind of a broad theology of what, what this freedom is, uh, first freedom in Christ means that his death has given us freedom from the penalty of sin. That his death has given us freedom from the penalty of sin, and his death has given us freedom from sin in our lives. We've been given freedom that before the Bible speaks to our sin as something that enslaves us, that we had no choice but to follow uh, the wisdom of the world, that we had no choice, that our bodies were enslaved, predestined, predetermined, uh, from the beginning of our birth to want to reject God and run from God. That in Jesus we achieve freedom from that sin and we achieve freedom from the penalty of that sin in his death which takes on that penalty. Um, we receive freedom from a, a, an eternal death and when we are united with Christ in his resurrection. We receive freedom from our death in his resurrection. That when Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says that we also were knit together with him. So when he rose from the dead, new life was offered to us. This is where we find a, a progressive sense of freedom from the control of sin in our everyday lives as a believer. And it's ultimately where we receive freedom from eternal death when we are given the eternal reward of Jesus in new life a new body, an eternal life, not as opposed to an eternal death. Uh, in, in this freedom, we're given freedom from the Old Testament law in this new covenant. 
that when Jesus dies on the cross, when he's in the grave, we see the veil in the temple torn. We see the separation between God and man destroyed. And we see a new covenant ushered in, a covenant that we celebrate every week when we take communion together. A covenant not based on the Old Testament law of regulation pointing to the ways that we could never measure up so that we would look forward to the sacrifice of Christ, but instead a covenant that looks back towards the implication of Christ's sacrifice so that the fact that we could never be measure up would be made right. We're free from the law. We are not bound by the ceremonial and, and sacrifice restrictions of the Old Testament, but those have been fulfilled and we've been ushered into a new covenant. Uh, last, we find freedom from the judgment of man because our status before God is secured in Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus' death has paid for our sin, his resurrection has given us new life, and then his ascension into heaven secures for us a position before God as we are united with Christ so that when God looks at you, he looks at you and he's pleased with you. And that, that's a simple sentence, but, but dwell on that for a second if you, if you think about who you are, Right? So take two seconds and be honest about who you are. And then, and then try and just say that sentence in your mind. God, God is pleased with me. And it, it's almost hard to reconcile. But God is not pleased with you because he sees the quality of your actions or he sees that you checked off every box in your devotional prayer book this week or you like didn't yell at your kids this morning. God is pleased with you because when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to you and he sees you as a child of God. The way he made you, the way that he is making you and transforming you. And so we are free from fear over the judgment of man. We are free from the way that other people see us. We are freed instead to see ourselves as God sees us. Like he looks at his son Jesus who never sinned, who never faltered, who made a way to knit us into the family of God. Paul says, for though I am free from all. I am free from my sin. I am free from the penalty of death. I am free from the restrictions of the New Testament. I am free from the judgment of man. He says, even though I am free from all of that, he says, what I have done, what I have done is I have made myself a servant. Literally, the word here is the same word for slave. He says, I have made myself a servant, a slave to all that I might win more of them. This verse has an awesome kind of juxtaposition of these two themes in it. That we were slaves to sin, that we were slaves to death, that we had no destiny outside of Christ but those things. What other people saw and thought of us mattered a lot because we knew nothing other than that. But Paul says, I've been set free from all of that, but in the freedom that I have found in Christ, in the freedom from my sin, in the freedom from man's judgment, in the freedom from the law, what I've chosen to do is make myself a slave to everyone else so that they might know this Jesus. Paul says, I, I was enslaved, I was made free, and I chose to make myself a slave again for the sake of the gospel. And he uses an interesting phrase for Paul. He says, that I might win more. That I might win more. Now, now we are in free in Christ. We are free in Christ, but what God has done through the power of the gospel is he has equipped us to use our freedom to serve others and to proclaim the gospel to others. And, and so the Bible is incredibly clear about two things that sometimes seem a little bit paradoxical to us. Uh, the Bible seems to be incredibly clear that when someone meets Jesus, when someone believes in Jesus, when they are saved, when they place their faith in the blood of Jesus to pay for their sin, the resurrection 
to give them new life, the ascension to assign them status before God and man. When they believe in that, that God has been planning on that, he's been working on it, and he's the one who causes it. The Bible's incredibly clear about this, that he has predestined us to meet him, that he is the one who actions change in our heart. But at the same time, there's incredible clarity that the work of man still matters. That the proclamation of the gospel, that pursuing people with the gospel, that trying to share the good news of Jesus, that that has how God has planned for people to be saved. That the way that he has planned that people would know and meet Jesus is through the speech, the testimony, the lives of believers who share that truth. And so Paul saw himself, when he thinks of his purpose in life, he saw himself as trying to win others. He saw himself as trying to have other people's faith, other people's salvation, other people's security, other people's freedom. That was what was his win. That's what brought him pleasure. He wasn't trying to buy a boat, like me, or whatever else I get fixated on. He wasn't trying to uh, have a perfect family, or or the most beautiful children, or, or attain the highest degree, or the political office of his day. He wasn't trying to have any of that be his goal or his win in life. Instead, because he saw his ultimate purpose as proclaiming the gospel, he saw his goal, his win, his pleasure to be pursuing other people, that he might win them, that he might be the one who got that privilege to share the gospel with them and see them come to faith. We are free in Christ, and that freedom in Christ, that freedom from our sin, that, that, that progressive saving, which we call sanctification, right? That we believe that God has already on the cross, he has saved us in faith from the penalty of our sin, but he is progressively saving us from the power of sin in our lives. That's why we still struggle. That's why you still mess up, you still sin, you still falter, you still step away. That's why you have these besetting sins that you're struggling with. That's why sometimes you choose wrong instead of right. That's why sometimes you are self he says the power of Christ working in him progressively saving him from the power and the hold of sin in his life has equipped him to use his freedom in Christ to serve other people to make himself a slave to others now how does this play out Um, he explains this in uh, 19 through 22 he says to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews To those under the law, that is, I became one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Uh, Paul brings up three different groups of people here. He brings up the Jews the Gentiles, and then this kind of uh, vague group called the weak. Paul says, I have three groups that I was ministering to, and sure enough, Paul did throughout his travels minister uh, to Jews. Paul was a a Jewish person by birth and a Jewish person uh, in his religion beforehand. He wasn't just a Jew. um, He was was a Pharisee. He was a zealot. He was a student of the law. He was someone climbing the ranks of the Jewish religion of the day. He says, I was a Jew. He says, but now I'm not. He says, I'm not under the law anymore. He ministered to Gentiles, those who didn't have the law, those who were outside of the Jewish faith. And then he ministered to those who are weak. 
uh, to the Jews, Paul says, when, when I was working with the Jews, when I, was, when I was sharing the gospel with the Jews, he says, even though I'm not under the law anymore, he says, even though my definition is not as a Jewish man under the law, he says, even though that's true, in order to win them, he didn't seek to offend them or frustrate them by breaking dietary restriction or cleanliness restrictions. Instead, he chose to live as one under the law, even though it would have been easier for him personally not to so that he could preach the gospel to them. Uh, we won't go through it right now for the sake of time, but in Acts 20, verses 20 through 24, you can read later how Paul's compelled, because he has gospel opportunity with some Jewish people, to, uh, to go through temple and to take on purification rites. Not just him, but to actually pay for these other Jews who apparently couldn't afford that temple ceremony, just so that he would have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Uh, Paul, when he was with the Gentiles, though, when he was with those outside of the law, he changed his approach. It would seem that he stepped away from eating kosher, enjoyed that God-given piece of bacon. What a glorious moment. Like, Paul meets Jesus. He sees him face to face, and he goes blind. Scripture doesn't record what happened when he ate bacon, but maybe he lost his hearing. I don't know. Like, it's probably also pretty spe- That's sacrilege. Forget all that, okay? I'm a little sick. There's some Sudafed in my system, so some of the things today. It's like every other week. They're like, don't use the Sudafed for an excuse. You say ridiculous things all the time. Because when, when I was with the Gentiles, it, he moved away from the law. He didn't make the Gentiles feel like that God was incapable of loving them due to the fact that they didn't have the same religious pedigree as him. And we see this in Galatians 2, 11 through 21, where Paul is speaking to and criticizing Peter, saying, Peter, you used to eat with the Gentiles. You used to eat unclean and take part in these meals with them to share the gospel with them. And then you got scared of your Jewish friends. And you stopped eating with Gentiles, stopped sharing the gospel with them. We see throughout Scripture, Paul, even though he was a Jew, ministers in predominantly Gentile culture often. Often changing his approach, having to be around them. Uh, Paul says he also changes approach when he ministered to the weak. Uh, Paul says uh, wherever he knew an action that he might take might distract or harm someone from meeting Jesus, that he chose to sacrifice his freedom. Now, we saw this just last week in Corinth. Uh, Paul chose to not take a paycheck when he was in Corinth. Paul said, man, the verses last week were so crazy, where Paul says, like, I, he says, I would, rather, I would rather die. Like, woe would be to me if I did anything that would keep me from being able to share the gospel with you guys. And so Paul, even though his life would have been easier to take the paycheck that he was due from the Corinthians, chooses to not be paid so that he can share the gospel there. Because they're weak in that sense. That for them, for him to take a paycheck would have distracted them from who he was and the message that he meant to bring. That they would have thought he was like these other religious leaders of the day. They would have thought he was just one more celebrity coming in to impress them and take a check. And he says, that, that would have detracted from the gospel, so I didn't do it. And I don't think that's the only time that, that Paul changed his approach for the week, that he took on a stance that he didn't have to, that was hard for him, that sacrificed a preference or a privilege that he had so that he might do ministry. He also brings up the fact that he didn't take a wife so he could do more ministry. Which, I mean, I don't know where I'd be without my spouse. Like, I don't know, I mean, especially like church planning, like, I don't know how I'd do this thing without her. And yet Paul says, even though, even though it might have made my life easier, certainly would have made it uh, happier in the pleasure of marriage, but I chose not to do it for the sake of the gospel. 
So, so what we see here is, is an approach that's just staggering to us. Um, I have a friend who's a church planner um, in a small town. Um, and, and that church uh, is kind of near uh, some bigger areas. And so it's, it just seems like everyone in that town that was like uh, maybe familiar with church, they've all found places um, in, in larger cities to go attend. Uh, big churches, to be honest, in those churches, they're, they're not calling them too much. And so this friend of mine has moved in this small town to say, hey, we're going to plant a church here that, that focuses on people's lives, being affected by the gospel. Um, but because of that, that church has grown slow. Uh, that church is around four or five years old now, and from the beginning, that buddy of mine has had to work a second job to make it work. That, and I, I'll tell you, he devotes every single same hour as I do for the sake of his church. But on the side, he has another business to make do. And, and I think about people like that, the sacrifice and the beauty that they see in the work that God has called them to. Paul says it was, it was important enough for me to have the privilege to share the gospel, to sacrifice all sorts of other things. He says it was important enough that I knew the people I was ministering to, that I knew how to present the gospel to them, that if I saw anything in the way in any sense, I, I would change it. Now, now, this is easy if you think about things that would have personal gain for you, right? Like, let's imagine uh, you're a, a car salesperson, okay? So your job is to sell cars. Uh, of course, when somebody comes in to buy a car, you're going to, like, size up your customer, Right? You're going to size them up. You're going to try to decide what they, what they might like, what they might dislike. You're going to pay attention to their body language and tone. You're going to hopefully give them space if they need space, although that never happens because I don't know. But you're going to try and figure out this person and what makes them tick that you might be able to serve them because you want to sell this car at the end of the day. As we preach the gospel, we must be hyper aware of the people around us. We need to be aware of their struggles, their sensitivities. We must pay attention to the way that we share the gospel and how our actions are affecting their ability to hear the gospel. We need to be willing to sacrifice. We must be willing to sacrifice our own preferences, our own privileges, our own strategies so that we become students of the people that we've been presented with in our lives. Like, one of the things that I've always dreamed for River City Church is that, that we would see people that don't know Jesus that are in our lives, like your friends, your coworkers, your family, uh, those people that live in your neighborhood, that, that those non-believers around you, you would see them as a gift to you. That, that your approach to the world around you wouldn't be us and them, oh, wouldn't it be easier to be a Christian if there wasn't all this opposition from the world? That's not biblical. Like the, the Bible is certainly concerned with the force of sin in this world, but it's not mad at the people who are caught in that sin. Would you instead see them as, as a gift to you, that those are the people that God has given you to preach the gospel to? And so, so as you look at their lives, would, would you learn them? Would you, would you find this ability to, to read the context you're in? Would you find empathy for those non-believers around you who, yeah, some of the things in their lives might frustrate you. Maybe sometimes it's because it makes you jealous and you wish you could sin in that way. But would you find empathy instead to care about them, not be frustrated with them? Would you, would you try and develop in yourself some self-awareness in the way that you approach and share the gospel? That you pay attention to body language and tone and moment? And would you grow in the boldness to preach the gospel? You wouldn't be so worried. Because I think the idol for us isn't whether or not we get paid. It's not most of us are in professional ministry. I think the idol for us, the thing that we're not willing to sacrifice, is just being liked and feeling normal. 
I was in a conversation this week. Uh, I work out of a co-working space, uh, and kind of the truth of the gospel came up, but also some just kind of tense cultural issues came up. And when I was talking to my wife about it earlier, I mean, I was talking to two people that I see every day that I like very much. They're like friends to me. We're growing closer. And in this moment when these cultural issues were coming up, when like an opportunity to talk about the gospel was coming up, I said to my wife, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack. I just felt like I was going to die. Like, I was just so scared. Because I knew, like, I knew in that moment, like, this, this is an opportunity to give an answer for your hope. This is an opportunity for me to speak about why I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice some of what might be pleasurable to me because I believe God is for my good because of what Jesus has done. That even though there are hard things culturally that, that we want to lean into, that this is why I'm willing to lean out. It was terrifying because there's this idol of being liked. And it's a false idol. Like, I was able to have an honest conversation with them because they know I love them. I was able to share things that we deeply disagree on that are really personal with them. And it's not because I'm good at it. It was terrifying. But it's because they know I care about them. So we were able to have this small conversation. And it wasn't revelatory. I don't think anyone got saved in that moment. But that was a false idol. of Thinking, man, if I'm honest about my faith, they won't like me anymore. Sometimes the thing we need to sacrifice is just whether or not people like us, whether or not we feel cool with it. Because the truth is that God is sovereignly working through the people that God has put in your life, that he is in control of them and their hearts and their destiny, but he has called you to be the person, the work, the voice of how his power works out. And I don't know why. It seems like a dumb choice, doesn't it? that the God of the universe would choose to do it in this way. But for some reason, he's chosen that that is the way that he is the most glorified. It's when he works through broken vessels like you and I. So what you do, what you say, the way you say it, the way that these things are on your mind, the things that you process throughout the week, they matter. They matter. Look at how Paul thinks about his approach to all this. Uh, Pick it up here in the second half of 22-23. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's life and ministry was pointing others towards knowing Jesus. That's all that he was about. And this brought him tons and tons of joy. He says, I, I, brought, I do this. He says, I, I've become all things to all people just so that I might save some. So I do this for the sake of the gospel, and then I love this phrase, that I might share with them in its blessings. That like, we don't want to share the gospel selfishly, but we also don't want to pretend that there's not great blessing for us when we're a part of the work of God. That, that when you are a part of the work that God is doing, when you pray for someone for years, when you share the gospel with someone that you've been investing in, when you just love them and care for them, when you are able to communicate to them the truth of the gospel of Jesus and you see them believe, it is, I think, one of the most joyful things in the world. 
There's nothing more beautiful than that. That you have just seen the eternal destiny of someone change. That you have just seen a dead person become alive. That you have just set a slave free through the power of the work of Jesus. That is amazing. Paul says he finds great blessing in this. Uh, when God kind of pushed me, called me into ministry, as you might say, um, I was on a mission trip like way up north in Canada. And I, I, I was like, I was a Christian, but man, I was pagan still. Like, I was a believer. I trust in Jesus. I think I was saved, but ultimately, there were just parts of my heart that God hadn't chosen to work in yet, and one of them was just materialism and where joy came from. And I just felt God changed something in me. As I looked around me and I saw these missionaries ministering in the middle of nowhere who had nothing and yet were happy. I read Matthew 6, where it says, Look at how God has cared for the lilies of the field. Will he not much more care for you? I tell you, even Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like any of these. That's not perfect, but it's close. The God drastically changed what brought me joy in a way. And that's not easy still. Like, there's lots of days. Like, I thought this morning, like, I don't feel very well today. This is the only job in the world where you get up and you have to, like, hitch a trailer to a car and, like, you can't just call in sick and be like, I'm just not doing it, right? <laughs> like, because I'm fine. They're hard days. Paul found great beauty, great joy in making his life about these things. Uh, we don't want to pitch this, like, this is all sacrifice and no blessing. To in responding to the call of God in your life, to be a proclaimer of the gospel, to sacrifice your rights, to enslave yourself to the needs of other people for the sake of the gospel, there is more joy and fulfillment than I think you could ever imagine as you bark up other trees. Because you'll never have enough money, you'll never find a beautiful enough spouse, there will never be satisfying enough sex or a cool enough car to make up for the joy that God has built you for and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, when he, when he thinks about this, he says, he, he thinks about it like a race. He thinks about a race. He says, it's like a running race. He says, do you not know that, that all runners race? And, and when they run, they run, and only one of them receives this prize. And he asks them to kind of reflect on what a runner's rhythm is like. Um, I, I've been trying to run more over the past two or three years, and for the past, like, four weeks, I've been more and more into it. Um, I, I'm certainly not a fast runner or an expert runner, but I've done enough over the past two years to, to say a few things about it. Um, one, it's stinking hard and it's terrible, Right? When it's done, you're like, I love that. That was such a good run. When you start, you're like, this is death. This, this is the stupidest thing I could do right now. Like, I own a TV. Like, what am I doing? Like, it is hard. And so when you run, there's, there's great purpose to it. That like every step, you're like, will I die? Will I die? Will I die? You gotta just keep going. Oh, one of the reasons I really enjoy it, one of the reasons I think I need it isn't just for the health benefits, it's for the mental benefits. It's just for having that fact that I can't think about anything else but staying alive when I do it, right? And that, that honestly, for my mind, is a break. When you run, there, there's, there's great purpose. There, there's focus to what you're doing or you can't do it. You have to think about it. You can't, you can't think off or you, you will find yourself slowing, walking. It, it's hard. It takes training. Because when you think about these runners in this race, it says, think about the hours and hours of training that they put in. Think about, um, I, I have friends... Uh, I mean, a couple in this room who've run all these marathons and the amount 
of work that goes into making your body do that stupid thing is amazing, right? It's because it's nonsense, first of all. I mean, you weren't made to run 26 miles, okay? Get a bike, whatever. Like, <laughs> but it takes a lot of training to get your body to that point. Now, even though I've gotten into running, I've enjoyed it, I've never understood, like, the whole race thing, right? I've never understood, like, okay, so you're going to tell me there's all these people, and they're in a huddle, and, and they're paying to do something that you, it's literally one of the only things you can do for free as long as you have feet, right? Like, there's zero entry cost to running if you have feet. If you don't, more investment. But you can still figure it out. People do. These people are paying to run. And why are they doing it? Like, at the end of the day, why are they doing it? Why? What do they get? They get a stupid t-shirt, right? I was like, yeah, give me a second. You, just, you paid $47 for a t-shirt. Like, Simeon could have made you that shirt for $8.50. I think you get a deal because you go here, okay? Like. We'll pitch it later. I get a commission, right? That's the thing we talked about. Like, it's just, it seems silly to me. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, think about, think about the work that, that runners put in. So, I think he's pointing here towards like the early Olympics. He's saying, think about the work that these runners put in. Think about the years of training, the suffering, the pain that they put in. And why do they do it? Just so they get a wreath. So they get a stupid little circle of leaves on their head. Just think about the work, the pain, the trial, the focus that they put into this, all for something that is going to fade away within days. So Paul says, I think of my life like a race. So I think of my life like a race, but I think of my life like a race, not to earn a crown of greenery, but I think of my life as a race, not with a perishable crown, but an imperishable crown. He says, I think of my life as pointing towards the eternal good, that when I share the gospel, when through the work of God someone believes that I am given eternal reward as I have a part in the work of God in saving a man or woman. So that doesn't go away. That doesn't fade away. That is not a perishable crown, but it is an imperishable crown. He says, so because of that, I don't treat my life pointlessly. He says, I don't box at the air. I don't just swing for nothing. I see my life as having great purpose. I train. I discipline myself. I suffer. I point myself away from what would be easy, all that I might seek out the reward of someone else knowing Jesus. Paul brings out this contrast that he's working for eternity. He's not beating at the air. We must work to sacrifice our freedom, our leisure, our money, our effort, our time, our freedom, so that we can pursue this eternal gift in the life of someone else. So how do we apply this? Man, I can't think of anything but this neighborhood we're moving into. Like, thinking about the diversity of race in this neighborhood. People from different backgrounds that have experienced different things. People that it's going to take work for us to relate to in some ways. At this church, we're thankful for the diversity we have. We hope we can pursue more, and I, I hope this neighborhood's a part of that. And that's going to mean sometimes shifting uh, our preferences and our desires. Uh, I think about the differences in social class that we're going to find in this neighborhood. I, I mean, it's interesting. If you literally, you've got that address, like jump on Zillow or whatever, pull up houses for sale and houses that are sold, and you will see a line between houses that are $80,000 and houses that are three, four hundred thousand. There are a couple houses on the market for a million dollars within six blocks of this building. 
And then on the north side, there's, there's some public housing. And there's some people that, that have had a rough go. I think about what it's going to take to love those two different kinds of people that are going to be difficult for us in different ways. Difficult for different members of our body in different ways, depending on who you are and where you've come from. I think about the religious diversity in this area. The fact that there are going to be people that believe different things from us. There are going to be people that just would say they believe nothing but the opposite of what we do. And what it's going to take for us to sacrifice our preference, our time. What it's going to take for us to be in messy relationships. Not just on Sundays when people walk through the doors, but in our homes. What it's going to look like to say, maybe I'm not going to be as safe as I always was. Maybe I'm going to get taken advantage of. Not going to try for that. Maybe I'm going to open myself up to pain and hurt. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant, a slave to all, that I might win more of them. Let's pray. <coughs> God, while it may feel hard for us to imagine what it looks like to enslave ourselves for the sake of the gospel, no one knows it better than you. No one knows better than you, Lord, what it means to sacrifice that you might save others. No one knows better than you the cost that it took to save each of us who believe. And so, God, I pray that our motivation wouldn't be selfish, God, I pray you change what we love, though. God, I pray that we would love this servitude, this enslavement, this sacrifice, and this pain. I pray that we'd love it more than the temporary pleasures that we fill our days with. God, I pray that, that you and your sovereignty, we know you are. We pray that you're doing a work. In Belknap, we pray that you're doing that in Grand Rapids and in the greater Kent County area, in our state, our country, and our world. God, we pray that, that you would work in us through your power to continue to free us from the hold that sin still has on parts of our lives. That we'd step into the freedom of Christ. A freedom to be selfless. A freedom to love others more than ourselves. A freedom to pursue the only thing that can give us true joy. Help us, Lord. Amen.